We're diving into our day of action, JAXA's slim landing, and the ways that eclipses impact solar panels on spacecraft. This week on Planetary Radio. I'm Sarah Al-Ahmed of the Planetary Society, with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. It's been another jam-packed week of space exploration, brought to you by the scientists, engineers, and space advocates that all make it happen. Up first, we've got Casey Dreyer and Jack Kearley, our very own space policy dynamos. Registration for the Planetary Society's Day of Action is now open. They'll share a big upcoming opportunity for listeners in the United States who want to spread their love of space to the halls of Congress. Then Kate Howells, our public education specialist, joins us to share the triumphs and challenges of the Japanese Space Agency's slim lunar lander. Please join me in welcoming Japan as the fifth nation of Earth to make a successful touchdown on the surface of the moon. Slim's landing was a victory, but there are some troubles powering the solar panels. Kate will get into the details. And speaking of powering spacecraft, have you ever wondered what happens when a solar-powered lunar orbiter passes into darkness? We're kicking off our countdown to the total solar eclipse of 2024 with Bethany Elman, the president of our board of directors and principal investigator of NASA's upcoming lunar trailblazer mission. She'll give us an update and discuss the planning that their team had to do to make sure the spacecraft can survive an eclipsed sun. We'll top off this lunar celebration with Bruce Betts, our chief scientist and everyone's favorite master of random space facts. If you love Planetary Radio and want to stay informed about the latest space discoveries, make sure you hit that subscribe button on your favorite podcasting platform. By subscribing, you'll never miss an episode filled with new and awe-inspiring ways to know the cosmos and our place within it. Every spacecraft begins as a dream. From the ones that explore our solar system to the orbiting observatories that stare into the depths of cosmic time. Like all dreams that better humanity, they require hope, hard work, and advocacy to become a reality. That's why each year the Planetary Society's members in the United States and around the world team up for our biggest advocacy event, our Day of Action. Casey Dreyer, our Chief of Space Policy, and Jack Curley, Director of Government Relations at the Planetary Society, are here to tell us about this year's in-person event in Washington, D.C. Hi, Casey and Jack. Thanks for joining me. Anytime. Hey, Sarah. It's always great to see you again. We're coming up on our 2024 Day of Action, and this is going to be my first time attending in person. And also, Casey, your first time returning in person since the COVID era. So this is exciting. This is also I should, my first time as being a parent running the Day of Action, which I don't know if it's necessarily germane to it, but feels important <laughs> nonetheless. <laughs> you know, like human life is so complicated, and I bet that puts an interesting new spin on literally everything for you, including space advocacy. Well, that and the long-term outlook of things. Like, do I want my daughter to grow up in a world where we have done Mars sample return or found life on Europa or Enceladus or sent a mission to Uranus or beyond, you know, to the, one of those interstellar destinations? Yes. The answer is yes to all those. And I wanted those before, but now I really want it for her uh, because obviously that, that tight connection. That makes me so happy to hear. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm sure there are some people who have literally never heard of our day of action before. They don't even know what this is. Jack, can you give us a rundown of what this event is and when it's going to be taking place this year? So the day of action is our premier advocacy event of the year. This is the thing that I'm telling you congressional staff are looking forward to because it involves people from all over the country 
coming to DC to advocate for space science and exploration. And it is the largest of these events. We are the leading organization that advocates for space. And this is the event that every year people are looking forward to because our enthusiasm shows through, our knowledge of the issues shows through, and it's really that opportunity to affect real change when it comes to U.S. space policy. So the day of action, it's if you want to make an impact, this is the event that you come to. And this year, we're doing it on April 29th, which is a Monday. It is the Monday where both the House and the Senate are in session at a time when we are going to be starting to talk about FY25 funding priorities as we go into the summer months leading up to that October 1st deadline. And I believe even though this event is actually on the 29th, I think that people have to register by a certain date. Is that correct? You have to register by mid-April to get a slot. And we do ask that you register because so, we what we do, the, the key is that make this easy for anybody, whether you've done this before or this is your first time, we book your meetings for you. So you show up to Washington, D.C., we book all of your meetings with your representatives and you're in teams with other people. You'll meet their representatives. You have opportunities to do drop-ins with, with fresh representatives who maybe don't know about space very much. And then we train you the day before on April 28th. So we ask that people come to D.C. on Sunday the 28th. We have a full day of meetings on the 29th where we advocate for space. And it's just a fantastic event because it's you're doing it together with us. We will be there, as you said, Sarah. I'm really excited to have you here this year. But you also get to meet your fellow members of the Planetary Society. And that we have seen over the years doing this has been one of the most rewarding and valuable aspects of this because you're meeting other space fans and passionate space advocates who are committing themselves. I mean, this is no easy ask that we're making of our members, right, to fly all the way out to Washington, D.C. or drive or take time off of work and really put themselves out there. It's always, if nothing else, truly inspiring for me and Jack to see our members step up like this. And as Jack pointed out, a really great time for the members and their staff themselves in Congress that they see people so passionate about something so, in a sense, pure and and optimistic, which is, you know, sorely needed right now <laughs> for everybody and a great way to engage in, in our democracy. I'm really looking forward to April for this reason and because it's right after the total solar eclipse on April 8th. So I think that these two things together are really going to create just a month-long space party. Of course, here at the Planetary Society, it's always a space party, but I think that this is going to be a really great moment to get people all across the United States and also in Mexico and Canada really excited about space. Well, I I will say that having the, the, the total solar eclipse scheduled for two weeks before the day of action, whoever did that scheduling, like credit to you, because I feel like enthusiasm on Capitol Hill is going to be really high and people are going to be really excited about space, about this opportunity to explore the cosmos and, and, and understand and know our place within it. And this opportunity really allows advocates you know, members of the Planetary Society, members of the public to be that voice for the future of space science and exploration. And so I think it's going to be that gr a great moment where we're all going to come together and rally around these exciting missions that are part of our 2024 priorities. So what are our 2024 priorities? Because I feel like there's so much going on right now, so many shifting timelines for different missions and just so much at stake. We go through a process every calendar year where we, Jack and I sit down, we try to map out what our big areas of focus are going to be. And, and that's a function and that can change over time because 
the budgets will come out. We'll see different political things go up or down. Budgets can go up or down. And we try to be responsive to that. But ultimately, we have these core goals and interests at the Planetary Society, right? We want to explore worlds. We want to find life. And of course, we want to defend the Earth from asteroids. And those drive our specific areas of interest. And for 2024, the calendar year 2024, we are really going to be focused on, well, one, planetary exploration, NASA's robotic science missions, specifically the ones that are really struggling. Those need the help. We love all of them, right, Jack? <laughs> we, we, we sure do. We, 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 we we're big fans of everyone, but some of them just need more attention and some TLC than others in terms of advocacy because they are struggling. Next year or this upcoming year, obviously, Mars sample return is going through a huge, very important decision point from NASA, from Congress. We don't know the outcome of that yet, but we do know that the society supports the, the priorities of the scientific community, that we support the decadal survey process, which is the identified Mars sample return as the top priority flagship robotic mission for the next year. And we know that we as an organization have talked about returning samples from Mars for, for decades now. This is an incredible mission. That's going to need a lot of effort and support. We're also really worried about other missions like Veritas that we talked a lot about last year that was functionally cut. We're worried about missions like Dragonfly to Titan. We really want to see that happen. There's a lot of challenging problems facing, and it's not even necessarily the problems of these of engineering or management of a lot of these other missions. The budget is shrinking. We really, really, really need to push back on that, that the pie is getting smaller, and that makes it a lot harder to do ambitious, exciting, exploratory missions like the ones I just talked about. So pushing back on that's a big one. We want to uh, engage and promote policy that supports the search for life. We're, that's a really big one. We're going to be presenting a big uh, engagement effort at the ABSICON, the big astrobiology science conference later this year to help brainstorm the ideas of what a national policy for search for life could look like. And then, of course, we're going to keep supporting key missions in planetary defense like NeoSurveyor, which finally got the money it needed last year, but it is waiting for Congress to pass its budget <laughs> this year so it can ramp up and actually hit that 2028 launch date. So there's a lot. Let's say this has been one of the most interesting times in a while in terms of NASA budgeting, NASA policy and politics, because we have so much on the table but we need the resources to do it. And we're, th those resources, I think, have become much less certain than they were even a year ago. And it's almost all the more reason why space advocates need to stand up and unite behind this vision. It's because this is the first year in, I think, uh, forever that we've, we're going into a new budget cycle already knowing that there's a cap in place and that the federal government budget is not going to be growing quite as much between fiscal year 24 and 25 as it has been. And that means less money to go around. That means less money for uh, NASA. And we need to make sure that our priorities, right, the priorities of, of the space science community are well represented. And that's how you, the listener, the advocate, <laughs> can be a part of making that decision mm. is talking to your legislators and talking to their staff. If this stuff sounds complicated, I mean, it, it is right, but you don't need to be an expert in 
planetary science or be an expert mm -hmm. in aerospace engineering to make an impact. You are a constituent and there are, you have three members of Congress, your house representative and your two senators who are there to serve you. And being a part of the day of action, being a part of our advocacy efforts is how you directly influence how they think about this issue. Because the, the fact of the matter is NASA is less than half a percentage point of the federal budget. There are so many other things that are going to take up the oxygen in the room, not just within space, but within the uh, greater context of the federal budget. And so making sure that you show up and you make your voice heard is going to make a world of difference. It'll make worlds of difference <laughs> in the exploration of our solar system and beyond. So if you are on the fence like this, this is that opportunity. We will do that all-inclusive training. We will give you the talking points. You just have to show up and bring your passion and enthusiasm for this topic. And it, like I said, will make worlds of difference. Yeah, I, I just want to add to that because this is a really important year. It's, it's going to be a tough year. It's also an election year, which a presidential election year, which means just everything else becomes more complicated, politically speaking, in terms of Congress and, and the decisions they'll be making. I mean, it's not just an election year, right? I mean, it's a presidential election, but then all of the House is up for re-election and a third of the Senate. So there's a lot of issues. There's a lot of potential change next year. But as Jack said, we do know one thing, which is the, the pot of money that we have to spend this year is, is smaller. That is the first time NASA will have lost money, will have budget have shrunk since 2014. So we're looking at the first time in a decade that this has happened. While NASA's been building up all these ambitious missions, including, of course, sending people back to the moon, which was recently delayed. So that's not going to get cheaper. I did want to ask you about that, actually, because I, I'm assuming that delaying the Artemis program is going to have some kind of knock-on effects for all of the other planetary science missions. Are we concerned it's, about that? Yes, but also it wasn't a surprise. You know, there's a reason to, it's not <laughs> going to the moon as we're seeing is very difficult. There's a reason why no other nation has even attempted it with humans since the Apollo era. That should say something, right? This isn't something people take shots at uh, all the time. It's going to be difficult and it's a completely new way of doing it. It's going to take longer than you think. It always does. Now, the question is, NASA is using this novel contracting method that has fixed price commitments from the government with a lot of commercial companies taking on a lot of that risk, like SpaceX and, and Blue Origin for the landers. That can help mitigate the cost overruns for as certain aspects of, of Artemis. But at a certain point, there may be a transition era or a cost limit that those companies cannot bear if they haven't figured it out yet. We just don't know. This is all, I say this over, this is a huge experiment we're running. Never, if, ahistorical, right? There's, there's no historical precedent for this. And we just don't know. So at the moment, what we have seen from what Congress has done this year is that of the original budget proposed by the Biden White House, he asked, they asked for more money for everything. But what Congress has been willing to do only has been to give more money to Artemis. And in order to pay for that under a flat budget, it has taken it from NASA's science missions functionally. That the science has gone down by about the amount that Artemis has gone up. And that will probably continue. That has a historical <laughs> precedent, unfortunately. And that's what we need to be really careful about. But at the same time, it wasn't because Artemis blew its budget. It had, they had asked for more money for everything. And it just shows you the political coalition for Artemis is, is very deep and very strong. 
which is one of its strengths in a lot of ways in order to endure this. And so the point is, as these pies shrink, we need to make sure we preserve a slice for NASA and a slice for science. And unless we demonstrate that there's interest in this, and this is to go back to what Jack was saying, and I think this is a really important point, it can sound sometimes like we're being almost naive in how we present this. That, oh, you just go and Mr. Smith your way to Washington and say that you want some money for Mars and, and your member of Congress will say, great, I'll, you know, I'll, the process of democracy, we all give ourselves a pat in the back. It's easy to be cynical about politics right now, particularly in the United States. But this aspect of it, space itself, is the still <laughs> the least cynical, the most classically understood aspect of discretional uh, spending and representative democracy, where they see people who are interested in it. It raises the awareness. There's no pre-existing strong partisan position to take on it. You actually do have an outsized level of influence. It doesn't guarantee that we'll always get what we want, but it is profoundly helpful to participate in this. And then and, you know, we give options for if you can't travel to DC, you can take action online. You can call your members of Congress. You can, you know, do things from home even throughout the year. But this is an area where your classic grassroots engagement with your representatives to raise awareness of these issues has been shown to work. And I think will continue to help, even if we're facing a lot of headwinds right now. We just got to go there and give them just as much hope as we do about the future. I feel like we'll just come in there like a ray of uh, sunshine and give everyone something that we can really feel proud about. Because when we work together on these issues, we accomplish things that are so absolutely mind-blowing. And it makes me feel very proud to be a part of this organization. Thank you, Sarah. Yeah, it's the same. That's why I wanted to work here. And at the end of the day, I mean, as Jack said, these are people too. And you're coming in to give a break from all the difficult, really intransient parts of politics to say that there's something grander we can do together, that we have done together, that we can continue to do together. And by doing it actually makes us better as a society and as a species. That's a pretty good pitch, really, at the end of the day, compared to what they're usually hearing. And if you don't make that argument, that doesn't mean anyone else will on your behalf, right? We do our best, but it's just Jack in, in D.C. and me on the, on the West Coast. And we have members who we depend, this is where we absolutely depend on our members to provide that uh, breadth and depth of support for these issues. And there is a certain something to walking through the halls of Congress. You're seeing people run around and you walk into someone's office and you get to say, we're talking about Enceladus today. We're talking about Mars today. We're talking about something really amazing. And having them engage with you, that's a very satisfying experience. It is. And if you think that you'll be alone, if this is your first time doing this, if you're really on the fence and, and, and you don't know if you're going to be the only first timer there, about half of our participants every year, mm -hmm. about half, are first timers. So you are not going to be alone. You're going to be with your group. There's going to be people who have experienced this before. Casey and me are going to be there. Sarah, you'll be there. And we're going to go as, as a unit, right? We're going to mm -hmm. go together, unified with this vision for space exploration that literally brings people together.
right? right. <laughs> Here in DC for the day of action, yeah. but also all around the country and all around the globe. People are excited about what's happening in space. And this is the thing that brings us together. It's the thing that gives us hope. It's the thing that Casey, as you said, like makes us better as a species, understanding the cosmos. And what better message can you bring to your representative who maybe just got off the floor after a heated debate on some government program that you've never heard of before? For them to talk about space, right, and really uplift their spirits and uplift their vision for what our nation and what our, our species is capable of doing, there's no substitute. Yeah. Uh, Carl Sagan's cosmic perspective, right, an opportunity to give your representatives that. Sarah, should we mention the website for this if you're interested in the day of action? I think (laughs) so, That seems like a a pertinent uh, piece of information. Planetary.org slash day of action. Very straightforward to find. Registration is open now for 2024. We have early bird registration prices if you register before March. And you can, you sign up, we will be in contact with you. We'll give you online training and background over the next few months. And then all the action is on at the end of April. So that's planetary.org slash day of action. All one word. And or you could just Google it and it will come up. But yeah, we we look forward to seeing you and we hope you will come because it is really a, a wonderful event. And thank you both for helping to set this whole thing up. For all of the love and attention and action that it takes from our participants, you are the two that really help make this happen and give everyone this opportunity and, and make it such a lovely and easy and welcoming experience. So I'm super looking forward to toasting to victory with all of you in the Capitol in April. <laughs> yes. I'm looking forward to it as well. It's it's going to be a, a great, unique experience. We're very fortunate to get to, to work on this together. And, and I look forward to seeing everybody. Yes, that includes you, the listener in <laughs> DC in April, April 28th for the training, April 29th, day of action, planetary.org slash day of action. See you there. If it feels like there's a lot of lunar news going around right now, you're right. The upcoming total solar eclipse in Mexico, the United States, and Canada is 75 days away as of the release of this show. Millions of people are gearing up to observe the dazzling display as the moon passes in front of the sun. You'll be hearing a lot more about this in the coming months as we gear up for our Eclipsorama event in Texas, USA. The international effort to send humans back to the lunar surface is also underway. India's lunar exploration is going phenomenally, and last week we learned about the launch of the first NASA Commercial Lunar Payload Services mission, and the unfortunate fate of Astrobotics Lunar Lander. Thankfully, we've got some happier but still complicated news this week. The Japanese Space Agency, or JAXA's SLIM mission, touched down on the moon just a few days ago. Here's Kate Howes, our public education specialist and Canadian space policy advisor, to tell us how it went. Hey, Kate. Hi, Sarah. So we had you on the show back in September, right after the Japanese Space Agency's SLIM mission went off to the moon. Can you give us a little refresher on what the goals of that mission were? Yeah, so this was Japan's lunar lander, their their first effort to land on the moon. And specifically, they were trying to demonstrate a landing technique that was a lot more accurate than most lunar landings. Normally, when you try to land something on the moon, you have a target area that's 
maybe a few kilometers across. Slim was intending to land within a target of 100 meters, which is about 330 feet. So not only is this just generally very cool to be able to do this pinpoint landing, it's also going to be useful for future missions that have very specific science objectives that require landing in a specific area. So if Especially if you don't have a rover, you just have a lander, you want to make sure it lands in the right spot. So the SLIM mission proved a new technique of doing that. They also had these two quirky little rovers on board that they wanted to test as well, which I thought were were really adorable. <laughs> yes, agreed. Tiny little rovers called LEV-1 and LEV-2 for Lunar Excursion Vehicle. The first one, LEV-1, hops around cute, definitely cute. The other one is spherical and sort of rolls around, almost kind of crawls by swinging back and forth. Really neat, interesting ways of getting around and something that you can do on a small scale. The spherical rover was about the size of a baseball. Both of them are really quite tiny like that. And you can't equip something that small with wheels or tread or that kind of thing. So again, just Japanese space agency doing some really innovative stuff. I'm just imagining a future where we deploy a bunch of little rolling rovers onto a world and let them all go do their thing. I think that'd be really cool. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, the mission actually launched and we were waiting for it to reach the moon. It went into lunar orbit, but how did the landing go? So overall, a success. They landed on target on January 19th. This makes Japan the fifth country to ever achieve a landing on the moon. Now, there was a slight caveat to that success, even though the overall mission goal was to make this pinpoint landing and they achieved that. They did find that once the lander touched down, its solar panels were facing the wrong way. So it wasn't collecting sunlight to power itself. So this was a little bit of a, of a issue. It did mean that the lander drained its batteries quite quickly and was powered down on that same day that it landed. They're still hoping that it'll get a chance to regain some power in a few days once the solar panels are pointing towards the sun again. But still, it was able to achieve its goal, and it still has the opportunity to conduct some science once it gets that little bit of power back. Yeah, I'd still count it as a success. I mean, honestly, oh, yeah. we've seen so many different organizations, both commercial and government agencies, try to land on the moon, and it's it's really hard. And we even yeah. just saw a couple of weeks ago, Astrobotics Peregrine Lander attempt to try to touch down on the moon and have an issue that sadly prevented it from doing so. So like, in the end, it's a really difficult thing. And I would still count this as a roaring victory. Yeah, absolutely. When the Peregrine spacecraft had its failure, a couple people reached out to me for commentary. And what I said was space is hard. It's really difficult to do these things. It's not that this company made some obvious error or, you know, failed in some way. It's that it's really hard. You have to be perfect to accomplish especially landings on other planetary bodies. So even a slightly imperfect success like this is still really impressive. It's a really big stride forward for JAXA, the Japanese Space Agency. And with this new precision landing technique, this is going to be huge for every other nation, every other company that wants to land on another planetary body. You can do it much more precisely now. 
I think what's interesting about it is that in the context of the moon, we have all this history of human beings going there, actually landing safely, getting their stuff done, and everyone returned. So I think there's this perception that if we could do it with crewed missions, why can't we do it now 50 years later? And the answer is, we got really lucky during the Apollo era. That could have gone way worse than it did, honestly. Yeah, I also always say... If you pour unlimited money into any endeavor, you can pretty much achieve it. I mean, I know that that's, there are limits to that, but the Apollo program was so staggeringly well-funded that, yeah, we were able to achieve things that, and make it look easy. Whereas now, yeah, we're, we're way behind on where people back in the sixties thought we'd be by now, but it's because the funding just has never been there in the same way that it was during the Apollo era. So yeah, poor you know, tens of billions, hundreds of billions of dollars into NASA's budget again, and you'll have humans all over the place easily. Right. And hopefully a lot more missions that are actually out there landing successfully on other worlds. This stuff is really hard. So people's advocacy for this kind of thing, NASA's funding and funding for other space agencies like JAXA, ESA, ISRO, it's super important to the success of these missions. Absolutely. We'll be right back after this short break. Greetings, Bill Nye here. How would you like to join me for the next total solar eclipse in the Texas Hill Country this coming April at the Planetary Society's Eclipsorama? That's right, I'll fly you and a guest to Texas, and you'll have VIP access to all things Eclipsorama. Talks on astronomy, planetary science, captivating exhibits, star parties, and more. To enter, go to EclipseWithBill.com. Donate $10 or more for your chance to win. You don't want to miss this because the next total solar eclipse doesn't come through here until 2045. So don't let time slip away. Enter today and good luck. I really like hearing, though, that there is hope for SLIM, despite the fact that it did have to power down. What do we need to happen in order for these solar panels to actually get the power that they need? So my understanding is that it's we just have to wait for the moon's position relative to the sun to shift. So as the moon goes around the Earth, it different parts of it enter lunar daytime and lunar nighttime. So once it is in position in lunar daytime to have the sun's orientation be lined up with where the solar panels are facing it'll get a chance to charge up. This is, they originally wanted it to land with its solar panels already facing the sun, facing the opposite direction currently, but eventually that will change. So hopefully at that point, it'll charge up its batteries. And then we'll have you back on for another celebration. That would be so cool. (laughs) Absolutely. But even with all those issues, it still managed to accomplish a, a great amount of science and meet all of its goals. Well, meet most of its goals. Yeah, absolutely. And I think for a mission like this, the main objective was this landing technique. Once they landed on the moon, yes, of course, they were going to do some science. They're in an interesting part of the moon, worth studying. People can read more about it on our mission page for the Slim Lander. But yeah, the main objective was accomplished. The science is kind of the icing on the cake. I'm really impressed with what JAXA is pulling off these days. I had a friend ask me recently, like, what are other space agencies doing? And when I started talking about what JAXA is doing on the moon, but also at Mars, they were really impressed because they hadn't heard about it. So while I have you here, I wanted to ask you if you could give us a little update on the timeline for JAXA's MMX mission to the moons of Mars. 
Yes. So MMX, the Martian Moons Exploration Mission, was originally going to launch later this year. It's now been postponed to launching in 2026. So this is going to go study the moons of Mars, Deimos and Phobos, and return samples from Phobos to Earth. Really, really cool. Very ambitious mission. Now it's looking like if it launches in 2026, it'll be bringing Phobos samples back to Earth in 2031. And none of this actually has to do, this, this delay doesn't have to do with an issue with the spacecraft. It's actually to do with the rocket that's going to be launching it. So of course, you, if you put years and years of work and tons and tons of money into building a very futuristic, advanced, innovative spacecraft, you don't want it to blow up because of the rocket. So <laughs> it's worth making sure everything's working properly before launching. So JAX is doing that. So we'll still see this really cool mission launch in just a couple of years. We all kind of have a personal stake in this mission because one of the bits of technology on board that we gave grant funding to is something called PlanetVac, which I know people have heard Bruce Betts talk about in What's Up because he loves this thing. But that's one of the technologies that's going along with this mission. So we're all really looking forward to it. Yeah, PlanetVac is super cool. It's a sample collection mechanism that goes on the leg of the lander and it blows a puff of air out. And as that puff of air goes out, it disrupts some of the material on the surface and then it catches that. So it's sort of, instead of just sucking something up, it blows and then catches what, what gets blown away. Really cool and, and especially very cool, yes, for all of the Planetary Society members who had a direct role in making this technology happen. I'll have to remember to link our cute little commercial for Planet Vac on this yes. page of Planetary Radio because it's so funny and so infomercial-like, and it, it's wonderful. Yeah, it's a relic of, of an era of Planetary Society video making where we had, it was like the wild, wild west. We just did all kinds of kooky stuff, and I'm, I'm really very into it. <laughs> Loved it. Well, thanks for joining me, Kate, and for giving us an update. And hopefully, fingers crossed, Slim will come back to life and we'll get a happy update from you later. Yeah, we'll be keeping an eye on it. And everybody can uh, be sure to hear updates if they listen to Planetary Radio, but also if they subscribe to the Downlink, our weekly newsletter, where we talk about stuff like this. Thanks, Kate. Thanks, Sarah. We're rooting for you, Slim. May the sun shine upon your solar panels. It's always so sad when a perfectly good spacecraft goes silent because it can't get sunlight. It's happened to so many of them. But if our next guest has anything to say about it, it won't be happening to her team's lunar orbiter. On our planet, we experience solar and lunar eclipses when the Earth, Moon, and Sun align just right. When the Earth passes between the Sun and the Moon, you get a lunar eclipse. The Moon's sunlight is blocked by our planet, and sunsets from around the world cast their red hue onto our neighboring world. On the other hand, when the moon passes between the Earth and our star, we get solar eclipses. These cut a path of darkness that humans chase as the moon's shadow travels across the face of our planet. Most people think of these events as fun oddities, moments to gather and experience space. But for those who run solar-powered spacecraft in and around the Earth and moon, these alignments of celestial bodies provide unique challenges. How do missions plan for the moments when things go dark? Our next guest is planetary scientist, Dr. Bethany Elman. She's a professor and director of the Keck Institute of Space Studies at the California Institute of Technology. She's also the president of the Planetary Society's board of directors. Her expertise spans a broad range of areas, including mineralogy and chemistry of planetary surfaces, remote sensing, and astrobiology. 
She's played a key role in several NASA missions and is currently the principal investigator of NASA's upcoming Lunar Trailblazer mission. Hey, Bethany. Hi, Sarah. So we've got this major total solar eclipse coming up on April 8th. I'm really excited to go see this. Are you going to be with us in Texas for the Eclipsorama event? I am looking forward to being with the Planetary Society in Texas. Absolutely. And this is going to be your first total solar eclipse, right? It is. That's one of the reasons I'm, I'm so excited. And I really hope the weather cooperates and we have a great shot at viewing because I have never been to a total solar eclipse before. Space geek, though I am, this is one of the things I've never experienced. I mean, it's something that you have to be in the right place at the right time in order to experience. And I've only seen one. And I tell you, it blew my mind so much. And I've been dreaming of this day to go back and see it, not just with my friends, but with other people. I think experiencing it with the Planetary Society is going to be a whole different thing. I'm looking forward to it. Basically, 100% of the people that I know who have seen a total solar clips have told me that it's just, you know, outstanding and sort of surreal and, and it, it evokes this, this, you know, feelings of wonder and, and awe. And so I'm eager to experience for myself. Well, let us hope that the weather gods of Texas cooperate that day. <laughs> Fingers crossed. I know we selected the position specifically because the weather has some good history there, but you never know when a straight cloud is going to come rain on your parade. Absolutely. But if not, I mean, the consolation prize is being with many, many space enthusiasts. And I'm sure what will be an outstanding weekend of sharing our love of space. And I look forward to meeting folks there. Well, you know, the reason that any of these things happen is because of our beloved moon and its position on our sky. And you are the principal investigator for NASA's Lunar Trailblazer mission. Could you tell us a little bit about the mission? Lunar Trailblazer is a, a NASA small satellite mission that is going to orbit the moon. And our science goal is to map the form, abundance, and distribution of water and to understand the lunar water cycle. So what does that mean? That means Lunar Trailblazer will help answer the question, is there ice on the surface in the permanently shadowed regions at the moon, like sitting there at the surface, ready for us to, to investigate it? Why is there water at all on some of the sunlit parts of the moon where the temperature gets really high? And we didn't even know until 2008 that it was there at all. Um, and in the meantime, Lunar Trailblazer will also be providing some of the highest resolution maps of the temperature and temperature change on the lunar surface to get at the thermophysical properties and also the mineralogy of the moon. What are the rocks made of? How does that change? How does the degree of space weathering of soil change? So at the same time that we're mapping water, we're actually going to get the highest resolution composition and thermophysical properties maps to help guide future landers. Which is so important at this moment in time when we're about to try to send humans back to the moon. We've had several attempts at lunar missions in the last couple of weeks that have had some real challenges trying to land on the moon. So the more we know about what it's made of and potentially where all the water is, we could use that as a, a power source for some of these missions as well. Yeah, I mean, all of these are, are great reasons to explore. I am very interested in the science of the water as well, because that is the record of either water that came from the moon's interior and degassed through volcanism, or it's the record of water that was delivered into the Earth-Moon system by comets and asteroids. And, uh, you know, we know that our own Earth's water came from space, but we don't know exactly when or with what 
kind of distribution and what that meant for how our planet got started. So it may be that some of the repositories of this information are at the moon's poles. So the scientist in me uh, wants to go get at the ice in the poles in addition to any to the resource benefits that some that such ice could bring for future exploration. I think both are important and that the first step is knowing where to go. Where is the ice at very high spatial resolution? It's funny because for the longest time, I learned that the Earth got all of its water from comets. Over time, we learned that a lot of that could have been from asteroids. And then thinking about the fact that the moon was created in a collision with the Earth and all of the, the strange interconnection between our two worlds, knowing more about that water could be very, very helpful. I mean, just a few months ago, I was speaking with someone about a full granitic batholith that they found on the far side of the moon. And granite, as we know on Earth, usually takes water to form. So it's, it's very interesting to me that there's so much that we don't know about the moon and its composition and the water content, considering it's right next to us. Yeah, we've had the same neighbor for nearly four and a half billion years, same neighbor. And we still haven't had, we still don't know everything about them. We haven't had all the conversations yet. Um, there's still a lot more to learn. And, you know, the moon is really our, our, close, our closest planetary body for just continuing to learn more about how planets work. <laughs> we have one example, Earth, and we're able to make some extrapolations. But as you, you just said, from, you know, the discovery of this big mound of what appears to be a granite rock on the, you know, that on earth that forms by plates subducting that released water, then partially melting the crust and that forms granite. We don't think there are subducting plates on the moon. So there must be some other way of, of forming this structure if it's granite. And so, you know, I look forward to the compositional data, for example, that Lunar Trailblazer will be providing that will allow us to, to narrow down even further the composition of some of these silica rich features that, you know, we don't fully understand. The volcanologists of the world don't fully understand why they're there, how they got there, but it's telling us something about how planets work. The moon is a very interesting case because clearly it was very volcanically active at some point. It's covered in these kind of lava plains, essentially, on one side. The fact that one side is so different from the other is very interesting. Could Lunar Trailblazer tell us anything about why there's such a big difference between the near side and the far side of the moon? Yeah, I mean, there have been a, a lot of studies about the cooling of the crust of the moon, the effects of the tides on the earth during the lunar magma ocean phase. So there are a number of hypotheses out there for the near side and far side differences. And one of the things that Lunar Trailblazer will be doing are, is providing some of the best maps of what the composition of some of these volcanic units are. And that will just feed into the overall story about how the moon's crust evolved and how the rocks that we're seeing on the surface today came to be. I wonder if there's some interesting mysteries we don't even know are going to be there until we start looking at that composition. That's going to be really interesting. Yeah, I mean, uh, one of the most exciting things for me as a planetary scientist is just I love new data because we're at a stage where we're still we're still learning, we're still discovering. So every time that there's a new image, a new spectrum, a new, you know, signature of some type from one of our instruments. We're still learning what's in our solar system and how it all works. And so I, I have no doubt that there are discoveries that you and I will not be able to guess about <laughs> during our conversation today. We've seen a lot of lunar missions in the past few weeks encounter some serious challenges while trying to land. But something that it can be a challenge for lunar trailblazers, these other things probably won't have to deal with, is the fact that you actually 
are impacted by the moon eclipsing the sun as you're going around the moon with this mission. How is that going to impact your power source? And what do you have to do to plan around that? One of the most interesting things as principal investigator has been working on the science engineering interface of Lunar Trailblazer to make sure it's designed to be able to achieve our science objectives at the moon over our two-year primary mission lifetime. Hopefully, we can last longer for an extended mission. But part of designing a space mission, you kind of figure out, well, what is the most stressing case? Where is the system being driven to its limit? It might be a limit about data budget. It might be uh, a thermal limit might be a power limit. And in Lunar Trailblazer's case, among the most stressing situations that our spacecraft encounters are eclipses, both lunar and solar. The solar eclipses where the sun is blocked off of our spacecraft being the most stressing. Why is that? Well, we are a solar-powered spacecraft. In order to stay operational, to keep our system, our computers turned on, to stay in communication with Earth, to collect science data, we need photons. And when you're in a total solar eclipse, which our mission experiences periodically, even in space, not getting those photons. And so there's only a certain amount of time that the spacecraft can survive and maintain a battery state of charge above the recommendation. People know it's not actually good to drain most batteries all the way. Same is true of spacecraft batteries. <laughs> so you want to maintain a minimum state of charge, the SOC, min SOC on a spacecraft. And in Lunar Trailblazer's case, over our entire primary mission, the most stressful cases occur with lunar eclipses. So that is, in fact, what we have to design our power system to. I believe the number we ended up using was, you know, to maintain a 40% state of charge on our batteries for the current worst eclipse that we will encounter in our primary mission. But we know out ahead, I forget the exact date, but I think it's out in 2027, past when we think our primary mission where there's a deeper one. <laughs> and ideally, we want to be able to survive uh, that one too. And so we actually have to design for those cold, dark cases where for actually multiple hours, the alignment is such that in space, there's, there's a, a case where it's on the order of hours, a couple of hours, that we are not receiving sunlight on our solar panels, just simply given the geometry of the situation. And so we have to be able to turn on our heaters to keep things warm, but then have enough batteries to be able to survive the eclipse. And actually in the course of our design, that led to us adding more batteries onto our system. That was the stressing case that led us to add those batteries was the eclipse. And that's a tricky thing to plan around because now you're upping the mass on your spacecraft that changes literally everything about your planning. So it's really interesting that you have to think that far out about that. And I'm really glad that people consider these edge cases because you would never want an eclipse to be the thing that killed your spacecraft. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I mean, this is why one has an engineer who's focused on mission design to think it through these cases and scenarios so that the engineering team knows what to plan to. So in this case, it entailed running out a number of trajectories for what happens to a spacecraft in lunar orbit, you know, from the period from 2023 out through 2029. <laughs> we, we modeled uh, th those cases for being in lunar orbit. 
people don't understand just what complexity goes into this. You really got to think about every little thing. Otherwise, things could go horribly wrong that you didn't anticipate. But that, yeah, yeah. And, and Lunar, you know, there's um, a number of things that are happening at the moon. And one of them is that we're trying new, innovative ways to do space missions. Lunar Trailblazer is another member of this family of low cost but higher risk missions. And it's a challenge to make the smart decisions, but make smart decisions against a limited budget. So you can't do absolutely everything that you might want to do to test. So you try to focus on more the, the most important things. But, you know, these space missions ultimately come down to the details of the engineering being right. Do your spacecraft connectors of every single subsystem stay mated during the violence of the launch environment? Or do some of them, you know, uh, break loose? There's all these things that, you know, one can engineer around, but it all has to work right in space. <laughs> one of my favorite things is the the chambers where they take the spacecraft and just shake them real hard to see what happens. <laughs> the vibration testing, yes. Have you gotten to be there to see that? I have. I got to see it just yesterday, in fact, because Lunar Trailblazer is in the middle of its vibration testing. And it just so happens that we're, we're talking to each other on day two of vibration testing. I was out at Lockheed Martin yesterday for day one, and I got to see the spacecraft and, and, and be there for one of the vibrations of our X-axis. So we're going through that testing right now. That's amazing. And what a coincidence, too. Yeah, you How build this beautiful spacecraft and then you try to shake it and break it. <laughs> oh, it sounds like a personal nightmare. But, you know, if it survives, uh, that's even better. If it survives, you're judged to be good to go for launch. So that's that's a, it's a test, right? And that's part of just ensuring the system is robust and is going to function as expected in space. What's the current expected launch date? Lunar Trailblazer is a rideshare, so we launch when the primary mission that we are riding along with launches. Uh, at this point, we're riding along with Intuitive Machines number two, and that is planned for later in the year 2024. It's an exciting time in space generally. I, I say it's one of the most exciting times to be a planetary scientist. I mean, when we worry about, you know, when our mission's going to launch, and part of the reason we're not sure when it might launch is because of launch pad congestion at Cape Canaveral, because there are too many launches. Uh, you know, it's an interesting time in your field. <laughs> <laughs> that is such an interesting challenge to have. And we're having to limit the, those launch times so much more because of the increasing number of satellites. It gets more and more complicated all the time, but we'll still have a wonderful time watching the launch. And I know that all the Planetary Society members are going to be in our member community trying to watch that launch and cheering you on. So that'll be a lot I, of fun. I appreciate the good wishes. And as the launch date approaches, I'm sure we'll have some events to share the excitement with our members. So stay tuned and, and look for that later uh, in the year in 2024. Absolutely. Well, thanks, Bethany. Have a beautiful launch up in the coming future. And also, I can't wait to see you in Texas for that eclipse. Absolutely. I expect that we'll be talking a little bit more about Lunar Trailblazer before the launch. And so I think we will next see each other at the eclipse. Till then. Until then. We'll be hearing from Bethany Elman again soon in the lead up to the Lunar Trailblazer's launch later this year. And if you happen to live near our headquarters in Pasadena, California, Bethany's giving a presentation on the mission at Caltech on the evening of Wednesday, January 31st. It's going to be recorded, so it'll be available for everyone to view online after the event. But for anyone who wants to register, I'll put a link on the website for this episode of Planetary Radio. Now, let's see what Bruce Betts, the chief scientist of the Planetary Society, is up to in What's Up.
Hey, Bruce. Hey, Sarah. We had so many big news stories in the last two weeks about the moon, but I do think it is a big thing that we should keep shouting out from the rooftops. Japan just became the fifth nation to successfully make a soft landing on the moon. Like that's that's five different nations of Earth that have successfully landed on the moon without crashing. I feel like this is a moment. It is a moment. Some of them crashed before they did. But yes, congratulations to the team. That was a big accomplishment. And they, they had some glitches, but they got down on the surface, soft landed, didn't do the hard, hard landing crash that many a spacecraft have done. Yeah. Here's hoping that that light actually ends up on those solar panels and Slim just comes back to life. We'll see, but I'm, I'm sure we'll hear more about that in the future weeks. But I have hope. I think I think it might work. Cool. Sarah says that I'm on board. Woo. <laughs> we did get a question for you this week, Bruce. Oh, um, no. I know, but you know this one. One of our listeners, Carl Cameron from the UK, was really excited by one of our recent episodes about the Dragonfly mission to Titan. That's the, the quadcopter that's going to be flying around that moon of Saturn. And they wanted to know whether or not the funding for this mission was actually fully secured or whether or not we should be worried or advocating for the mission. And since we were just talking about our upcoming day of action, what do you think? What's the scoop on that? Well, I'd say at the moment, my understanding is funding is there, but especially with a development that's that long and things that happen politically as well as with mission development, uh, it's always a risk. And yes, we need to keep an eye on it and, and watch the advocacy. And obviously our colleagues, Casey Dreyer and Jack Kirli and others will be tracking that more carefully. But it's good now, but may not be in the future as with any anything like that. So we need to track it. There are other things that are being worked right now that are in a bigger crisis mode, but it's still worrisome. But hey, it's a, it's a drone on Titan. It's How cool be so is that? Cool. I know that Jack had a lot of success last year during the Day of Action carrying around a 3D printed Mars sample return container, and that that really made an impression on everyone in Congress that he showed it to. So maybe I need a 3D print a tiny dragonfly, carry that around with me and be like, look, you want this on Titan. <laughs> I think you should kick it up a notch and, and you know get a flying drone model of it. Of course, they <sighs> pro probably don't want to fly that near the Capitol, but maybe just maybe walk it around. It'll be great. It'll be awesome. But really, though, I mean, all of these space missions, no matter how secure they appear, all of them really need our advocacy. There are some that we're going to focus on. But if you're really passionate about insert mission here, go ahead and <laughs> write your representative or whatever nation that you live in. Write the people that have the power of these things and just let them know you're excited because these things don't happen in a vacuum. You know, ah. space exploration. <laughs> well, I guess. But space exploration happens because we want it to happen. So if you love something, tell the world about it. Otherwise, no one will know. Wow. Cool tunes. All right. Let's do our random space fact. I don't know if, like, you're crawling up from the depths or if you just need more coffee. Yes. Both are true. 
So this one's rather specific and refers to one picture from 1969, and it just intrigued me. I didn't was not aware of this. You have probably, you've undoubtedly seen the picture of Buzz Aldrin standing on the moon with Neil Armstrong in the reflection of his visor and the lunar lander and him just being astronaut on the moon. But what's interesting besides the fact that everything in that picture is interesting, is that when they released the image, NASA released the image hours after it was taken, there was black space this around him, of course, seeing this, the black sky, and then there's black space above his head. But that's not apparently how the image was framed by Neil Armstrong when he took it. It actually cropped off the very tip top of his helmet and NASA, someone at NASA added more black space to the top to make a more photographically centered image. And that is the image that ended up being used in Life magazine, the press, and to this day you continue to see it. And I was so confused when I was seeing two versions that I pursued this. So again, a single image, random space fact, kind of specific, but uh, I, I thought it intriguing. It is really intriguing and answers a lot of questions for me because I remember during the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 mission, I was trying to put together a PowerPoint and I came across this exact situation where I was going through the original images and I was like, where's the rest of the top of this? There's there's no black above this. Did they add to it? How did they even do that? They, it's not like they had Photoshop in 1969. I don't know. I, I, I'm curious and People can write in if you know more. It's the NASA History Office that actually is the source on the web that this happened. So it's it's a it's a good source. You can see both versions. There's a little tiny antenna that is on the top of the helmet that you can see got cut off if you look at what should be there versus what is there. In the end, you know, we, we don't like to, to doctor space photos. We're trying to be very careful about it. But in the end, I think in that instance, I'm kind of glad they did it because that image became so iconic. And if it was framed all wacky and, you know, still tried to put it on Time magazine, I don't think it would have hit the same. So <laughs> I wouldn't go so far as it was framed wacky, but but yeah, he cut the tip top of his of his helmet off. You know, which I can't really blame Neil Armstrong because, you know, he's on the moon and wearing a spacesuit. But, you know, it makes the case that we should teach all of our astronauts a little bit of basic photography and framing before we send them to the moon. I'm guessing they will. <laughs> well, if they, when they hear this, they definitely will. Yeah. You can teach them. It'll be great. Down to teach that class. <laughs> All right. Let's take this out. All right, everybody. Go up there, look up the night sky, and figure out where you would add black space in your life and your pictures. Thank you and good night. We've reached the end of this week's episode of Planetary Radio, but we'll be back next week with a fun but complex question. How common are total solar eclipses in the universe? The answer may shock you. <laughs> Love the show? You can get Planetary Radio t-shirts at planetary.org shop, along with a lot of other cool spacey merchandise. Help others discover the passion, beauty, and joy of space science and exploration by leaving a review and a rating on platforms like Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Your feedback not only brightens our day, but helps other curious minds find their place in space through Planetary Radio. You can also send us your space thoughts, questions, and poetry at our email at planetaryradio at planetary.org. Or if you're a Planetary Society member, leave a comment in the Planetary Radio Space in our member community app. 
Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by our members from around this beautiful planet. We'll keep advocating for space exploration until moon missions are so common you'll be sick of them. (laughs) That's not possible. You can join us and help many more amazing space missions launch to success at planetary.org slash join. Mark Hilverta and Ray Pauletta are our associate producers. Andrew Lucas is our audio editor. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which is arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. And until next week, ad Astra. (laughs) 